Hello, and welcome to A View from the Perch, a podcast covering important financial topics from the perspective of a financial advisor and an experienced certified financial planner. Each week, we give a brief market update, discuss current economic events, analyze and debate highlighted stocks, and provide education on a financial subject. Now, here are your hosts, Bill Parrott and Spencer Engelkev. All right, Bill, different week, same question. How are the markets? Hey, we got uh, a quadruple win. Really? Yes. Uh, Despite all the goings on with our government and the banking system, uh, pretty much it's across the board, same return. So the S&P 500 up a half a percent, small caps up a half a percent, bonds up a half a percent, and international Legging at 0.25%, but all four in positive territory. Hey, can't apologize for a win, right? Hey, you know, <laughs> singles and doubles. Yeah, exactly. That's how you win games. Yes. The, I guess really the big thing that's going on, you alluded to it, was the government yep. or the Federal Reserve raising rates from 5 to 525 mm-hmm. A lot of people are interested in this topic, and especially it seems the verbiage from analyzing and anticipating rate heights in the future to analyzing and determining if rate heights are needed. And so kind of if you want to walk our listeners through, people are saying a hawkish pause. What does that mean? What is this really the effect going forward um, in the market? Well, if you're listening out there and you're still in college, I would encourage you to change your major to English (laughs) because you need to decipher what they're actually saying and what words mean because words matter. Mm -hmm. Um, So a hawkish pause is they are potentially slowing down, but with their foot on the gas Mm -hmm. a little bit. So they're still saying inflation's an issue. They want to battle it. Their goal still is 2% inflation. So they are keeping the door open that we're going to potentially raise rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they say they're data dependent, but uh, they're leaning towards raising if inflation stays persistent. Yeah. But if it continues to cool off, I think that's where we get that hawkish pause because if it continues to cool off. They may do nothing. Yeah, they, they may, think they may a just, pause in June. Yep. And I think a lot of people are wanting a binary answer. Are they raising or lowering? <laughs> well, they could just stay here. Yeah. They could just, you know, uh, put it in neutral and just keep the engine running, And but you're not going anywhere. So they don't have to raise or lower. So I would bet that um, rates and inflation will probably stay at this level for a while. It's mm-hmm. just the new normal that you are getting used to persistent inflation and higher rates for longer. Do you think inflation over 5% is going to be persistent? No, I think, well, it's going to start declining, but it's not going to go from five to two. Yeah. So yeah. it might go from five to four, nine okay. to four, eight to four. But decreasing. But, but decreasing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a slow drip on its way back down to wherever it's going. Now, if you look at the five year, forward projections and the 10-year forward projection, they're in the twos, mm-hmm. two and a quarter, two, three, two, four. So the longer term projections for inflation are in that two to 3% range. Yeah. 
which I feel a lot of people are trying to get Powell to say, hey, are you good for 3% inflation for a prolonged period of time? He obviously declined to answer that. Yes. But that's really the only feasible, I think, outcome that's going to happen is a slow drip. And 3% compared to the 2 1% is a lot, but at the same time, it's a heck of a lot better than 9% that we had. Yeah. And I, I think as long as we're trending lower, yeah. that, that's that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but you add another layer on top of it, bank failures, yep. that's going to slow down the economy. And if you're a bank that survives, you're probably changing your uh, the way you do business dramatically today. Like yeah. You're probably not lending as much money. You're probably not... Uh, leveraging as much you're probably redoing your balance sheet a little bit and that's restrictive as well so if you have surviving banks not lending you have banks failing uh that's going to contract the economy Mm -hmm. plus if you're running uh spencer's deli and hot dog stand and you need to borrow money um you're probably not going to chase or b of a or you're probably going to a local bank. And if your local bank says, hey, Spencer, man, I love your sandwiches, love your hot dogs, but we just can't lend you right now. Mm. Now you're you're in a jam. Yeah, and I think that's what's really being overlooked, especially with this quote-unquote banking crisis that has been over, is the local banks are getting kind of shafted, like you're yeah. saying, and, and especially not being able to spur economic growth with these small businesses, which have always been the backbone of America. Nobody's talking about that. They're not going to be able to get funds for lending. Like you said, for Spencer's mm-hmm. hot dog and deli. I know I would never sell hot dogs, maybe deli, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's something that's just getting kind of swept under the rug. And with this idea of a soft landing versus a hard landing, a lot of things aren't being said that I think really need to come to the forefront. So kind of where, where are we on that? It's a great question. You know, talking about politics, I don't know how long ago it was, but the major money center banks were in front of Congress and they were getting railed. Yeah. You need to break up. You guys are too big. You took all this money. Now we have a crisis. What does the government do? Hey, JP Morgan, we need your help. Can yep. you bail us out? And now everybody like loves the big banks. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, and in, in we'll jump over to oil companies real quick. Yep. You know, when oil rises, everybody thinks they're gouging the consumer. And then uh, when oil falls, you know, they're on hard times. When oil goes back up, the government says, hey, you need to drill oil, man. We need more oil. We need to be energy independent. You can't have both. Yeah. So uh, really what we need to do is get rid of government out of certain things. Oh, uh, yeah, so libertarian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you, you do need regulation on yeah. the banking front. And I would love to see a two-tiered banking system. Mm-hmm. So one tier for the money centers, the JP Morgans, B of A's, Wells, Cities. And then another tier for your, your local bank and say, hey, you guys, here's your protected class. Here's what you're doing. Uh, I don't know how they do that, but um, I don't think you can lump in J.P. Morgan with Spencer's Bank and and savings and loan on the corner. Um, it, it's a challenge. Yeah, that's that's for certain. Um, yeah, we, but what's crazy is with all this doom and gloom, right? The markets are still battling. So I guess 
it's a kind of a testament to markets are forward looking and not. Well, markets always like to, to climb a wall of worry and do the opposite of what most people think it's going to do. Yeah. And, and right now, people are the most negative they've been in, I think, forever in terms of the future stock market. Retirees are less they're 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 less confident in their future. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, people are just super negative right now, and the market loves to do the opposite of what people think it's going <laughs> to do every time. Every time, and that's kind of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the market is looking at lower rates, yeah. lower inflation, which will be good. Yeah, I think the the first projected rate cuts are in September. So they're assuming that this 5.25% is going to break something else and cause a mild recession. Is that why they're thinking that these cuts are going to happen in September? Uh, yeah. Um, because the Fed always goes too far yep. in both directions, raising rates and lowering rates. And How many PhDs do they have? Oh, it's, it's, it's hundreds. It's hundreds and hundreds of PhDs. They have a moderation. That's interesting. Yeah. But the, yeah, they, it, at some point they're going to have to lower yeah. rates um, because they're breaking things. And the other thing, too, is if you can get right now the three month T bills at five and a quarter percent. So if you're at a bank and they're paying you point nothing, I'm going to go buy a three-month T-bill, five and a quarter percent. I'm going to buy a CD. I'm going to buy a high-yielding money market. And so those deposits leave mm-hmm. the bank. And that's where the banks make most of their money mm-hmm. is on cash deposits. So, Especially when they won't come out and say, well, we'll cover big banks, but I don't know about these small regional banks. We probably, if they fail, you know, sorry, you needed to be better in management. Yeah. And so, you know, if you run a local bank and... You go in there and say, hey, I, I love you. You're convenient, but I need to earn five and a quarter percent yeah. of my money. I'm going to move it to a treasury bill. So that that hurts the local bank. Yeah. So we will see. It's going to be kind of a waiting period, especially with these high rate environments to see if it, and the big testament or I guess kind of the staple that the Federal Reserve is saying we can continue to raise rates and not have a bank crisis is because they're assuming these are sticky deposits. People like to have that kind of app that says I have this amount in this yeah. bank and I'm safe with it. And that's really, I think, going to get put to the test this summer. And so, yeah. knock on wood, that they are sticky deposits. But like you said, five and a quarter versus 0.9% is tough, tough yeah. sell. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, I love you. It's not you. It's me, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm taking my money somewhere else. And, and you know, going from your local bank to the U.S. Treasury Department, is a safer trade. Yep. It's guaranteed. Uh, you may get some tax benefits. And so it's not like people are taking money out to speculate on Bitcoin um, or NFTs or whatever else. You know, they're, hey, I'm going to buy a U.S. Treasury. Yeah. And I, I don't blame them. It's hard to blame them. So I guess we will wait and see. And these this summer will be a kind of a testament to what's going to happen in the future. So let's let's move on to more uh, kind of, I guess, brighter topic. <laughs> and go yeah. to our empowering education, get a little bit more um, 
more happy in this in this segment. So we're really going to be talking about risk mm-hmm. and kind of all things associated with risk and making sure that people understand what it is, some fallacies that are in kind of congruence with it. And I guess the first question is, when we're talking about investing, what is risk? It's a great question. Uh, most people assume risk as a loss of principle. Mm. I put 10,000 in, the market crashes, my 10,000 is worth 5,000. That's principal risk, market mm-hmm. risk. Uh, that's what most people think of when they think of risk. It's losing uh, principal money yeah. on whatever they invested. Hey, the market crashed, I lost money, that's a big risk. Yeah. Conversely though, when people start making money, they have this high water kind of fallacy that they think, any money that they lost so is now considered risk as well. Well, that's a good example. So, uh, or a good point. So let's say you invest a hundred thousand dollars, it goes to $200,000 and then the market pulls back a little bit and it's now worth 175,000. You didn't lose $25,000. You're still up $75,000. But a lot of people go to that high water mark and said, Oh man, I lost $25,000. Well, I guess mathematically, mm-hmm. if you just looked at that, but you started off on 100000 yeah. You've made 75000 So you kind of have to redefine or re-educate yeah. the definition of risk when it comes to loss of principle. Yeah, especially realized versus unrealized because it's all systematize until you receive that withdrawals and actually realize that gain, then it becomes physical yeah. manifestation. Um, well, so I guess the big question, and a lot of people have this is, well, how do I just determine my risk tolerance? Mm-hmm. People like, I'm a gambler, right? I like to go play blackjack. I should be pretty risk tolerant, but then they turn <laughs> out to be risk averse. So the question is, how does one really determine their risk tolerance? You know, Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until you're punched (laughs) in the mouth. And um, for most people, you don't know what your risk tolerance is until you're in it. Mm. So when the market's rising, uh, people's risk tolerance goes up. Like, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I could handle risk. No problem. When the market corrects, people say, get me out. Mm. I don't want to do this. So really a big question for people is, what did you do last year? Mm. Did you... Hold on to your investments. If you did, you're probably pretty risk tolerant. If you sold and panicked, you're risk averse. And then you can look at 2020, 2008, and 2000. And, you know, we have questionnaires. uh, We have behavioral Mm -hmm. documents that we use. We the planned conversations. And it's it's just, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall to find out your risk tolerance. But one of the gauges that I like to do is what what did you do the last time the market corrected? Mm. What what happened? What did you stay the course or did you panic and sell? Yeah, that's that's good. And I guess because questionnaires are great, and like you said about the Mac, Mike Tyson quote, yeah, you do have a plan until you get sucker punched. And I guess the question is, okay, so I'm looking at my risk tolerance. I was able to stay put. I was able to stay put. Well, how do I know the risk associated with my investments? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. How do you discover that? Yeah. 
Uh, well, we use a tool called Riskalyze, and it puts a numerical value on the portfolio and shows them how that portfolio would have performed in rising markets and falling markets, rising rates, lower rates, inflation, no inflation, COVID, no COVID. And so it gives you a graphical picture of it. But you could also say, too, um, you know, if you're 100% stock, you're probably taking a lot of risk. And you can go back and look and see what the stock market mm-hmm. did. But moving beyond principal risk, there's there's other risk, too. So uh, what people experienced last year was interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. So when interest rates rise, bond prices fall. And the bond market had its worst year ever. And people say, I thought bonds were safe. Yeah. And they mostly are. But if you raise rates from zero to 5%, that's a nuclear bomb for the bond market. Mm-hmm. And so people are uh, realizing for the first time what interest rate risk is. Rising rates, falling bond prices. It's like a seesaw apart. Mm-hmm. So if interest rates go up, bond prices come down. But then it also brings in another risk. So people say, I'm just going to park my money in cash and wait till it's over. Well, now you're running into inflation risk. So as inflation goes higher, the value of your dollar goes lower. And if inflation stays at 3%, uh, over 30 years, you're going to lose about half of your investment to inflation if you just park it in cash. It's like if a boat stayed in a harbor and never went out to sea, eventually the the bottom of the boat, the hole is going to rot, mm. right? Even though it's safe in the harbor, it's just sitting there doing nothing yeah. and the water is eating at it and slowly it sinks to the bottom. So you have to uh, look at inflation risk. So for investors, um, the big three are principal risk, mm-hmm. inflation risk, and interest rate risk. And what we're experiencing right now for a lot of people is political risk. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, just kind of comes out of the blue, war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, right now, our government with the debt ceiling is holding the economy and the market hostage because they're going back and forth over who knows what. That's a political risk. And if they don't raise the debt ceiling, people are going to lose their jobs. The market's going to correct. Um, We're going to lose our status in the global economy. Uh, Not us, you, me, but the the, the United (laughs) States. So so now you have to factor in political risk. Mm -hmm. Um, So risk has multiple definitions. And each one can impact your your portfolio. Yeah, I, I like that. I want to dive into some things that you said, but first let's take it back to kind of the biggest picture in the most simplified form. So if I am a, an investor, I have a 401k and I'm looking at my funds, mm-hmm. as, as simple as you can do it, it's normally stocks are your volatile, risky um, investor, riskier investments and yeah. bonds are more safe and conservative, less volatile. So if I'm just... because. I might not have the riskalyze questionnaire or riskalyze yeah. software. How do I determine really like what a good mesh is, what a good mix is, and kind of if I'm too risky or not? Yeah. So you can look at some metrics when you look at your fund uh, or your stock. So one is a beta, mm-hmm. um, like a beta fish. And if it has a beta of one, yep. it's going to move with the market. 
Market's up, you're up. Market's down, you're down. If it has a beta of two, which is extremely high, Mm -hmm. if the market's up 10%, you're going to be up 20%. If the market's down 10%, you're going to be down 20%. So basically, it's two times the risk of the market. If it has a beta of 0.5, if the market's up 10, you're going to be at 15. If the market's down 10, you're going to be down five. So the higher the beta, Mm -hmm. the more risk you're taking. The lower the beta, the less risk you're taking. And then you can look at standard deviation. Uh, The higher the number, the higher the standard deviation, the more that thing's going to move around. So if it has a beta of of 20.2, let's say, Mm -hmm. and your your expected return is 10, uh, you could have a range of up 30% or down 10%. Um, So you just add that 20 to the average return of 10. So 10 plus 20 is 30. 10 minus 20 is minus 10. Mm-hmm. So um, you could look at the standard deviation of that. Uh, and then you could just look at what you're funded relative to the market. So you could review last year's return. And if um, if you were down 50%, you were probably taking a lot of risk. Yeah. If you were down four or five, you were taking a lot. You were pretty conservative. Yeah. Last year, if you had a balanced portfolio, you were probably down about 15%, mm-hmm. one five. Mm-hmm. And, and so you could look at what it's done relative to to other funds. And then you could just benchmark it to really anything. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And just knowing stocks are going to be more volatile, bonds are going to be less volatile. And so looking at beta, look at standard deviation, um, but really focusing on kind of what's my stock to bond allocation, especially with the 401k plan with the limited mm-hmm. funds that you have, will give you a good kind of idea of, of where you're at. I did want to talk about the inflation risk, especially when it comes to retirees, because this is a question we get asked a lot. I've been invested for 40 years. I'm ready to retire. I'm done taking risk. I don't want to see any of my money be lost in the market anymore. Why can't I just move it all to cash and... Let it ride. Well, if you have enough money, you can. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you again, you, inflation's going to eat at your principal. Yeah. It's going to erode it over time. And if you need an example, just look at the posted stamp. Mm-hmm. You know, in the early 80s, it was probably seven cents or 10 cents to mail a letter. Today it's 63 cents. Yeah. And it's going higher. Mm-hmm. So you need to have things that grow to keep pace with inflation. Yeah. And as everybody knows, if you've gone to a supermarket, the cost of buying everything is more expensive. Yeah. Eggs, uh, poultry, uh, Diet Coke, you name it. <laughs> uh, we always have to get that Coke into this. Always, always. But uh, if you have money that's not growing, yeah. your expenses are going to eventually uh, get so high that it, it starts eating your principal. So you need to have things that grow over time. So let's look at some historical numbers. Yeah. Going back uh, to the early 1920s, stocks have returned 10%. Mm-hmm. 
Bonds have returned 6% and cash has returned 3%. Inflation has averaged 3%. So if we take 10 minus 3, your stock return after inflation is 7%. Mm -hmm. If you take 6 minus 3, after inflation, your bond returns 3%. If you take 3 minus 3, you get 0 so if you keep all your money in cash, it will lose to inflation yeah. almost every time. Yeah. And that's, I think, a really valid point because a lot of retirees are like, why am I still? Because we talk about the 60-40 model um, a lot. And it's this question of why am I still having 60% stock? Mm-hmm. It's exactly why. You want to keep pace with inflation and make sure you're still gaining money because retirement's not the end. It's the beginning. And sometimes you'll live 40 plus years. You need that money to continue to grow. It's almost half of what you'd spend investing. (laughs) And if you are that FIRE movement, financially financially independent, retire early crowd, and if you retire in your 40s or 50s, that money has to last 50 to 60 years. That's a long time of doing nothing. Um, (laughs) But... uh, you, you need now the other side, and I kind of have jokingly said if you have enough enough money, but if you have enough money, you could park 10, 15, 20 years worth of expenses yeah. in bonds and not worry about it. So if you retire at 65, you could buy 20 years worth of bonds. Mm-hmm. So if your if your expenses are hundred grand, you know, you're you're putting two to two and a half million dollars in a bond portfolio. You get guaranteed money coming in. Don't have to worry about it. But if people are, well, let's add another risk that we haven't talked about is longevity risk. You could live to 100, 102, 105 potentially. And if you don't have things that grow, you could run out of money. Yeah. You could outlive it. Yeah. Just from longevity. Healthcare is improving. And if you're, in the United States, you got a pretty good life. So you need to make sure that your money lasts as long as you do. Mm, that's good. I like that. Um, so transition kind of from market risk. Let's talk about another risk that everybody hates talking about, and that's insurance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and kind of some risk that is associated with that. And the big question that I think a lot of early investors or investors in general are like, why do I need life insurance? When do I need life insurance? Yeah. What's the point of life insurance? People wrongfully just focus on the premium. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I don't want to pay $400 a month for life insurance. I don't want to pay $500 a month for home insurance. You know, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm good. Yeah. Um, but if you have a lot of debt, you're married, you have children, you need life insurance. Mm-hmm. It's table stakes. You cannot have a young family with children and debt and not having life insurance. Because if something happens to you, what about your family? So you need to insure several things there. Uh, You need to insure lifetime income for your spouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need to have enough money to pay off all your debts. You need to have enough money to fund your children's education. So when you start adding those up, it gets pretty expensive. But it's more expensive if you pass away without life insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's we hear stories about uh, accidents happening and 
you find out the family did not have life insurance. The beneficiaries are are. Well, I, I want to say a certain word, but they're they're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, we, I think we get what you're going yeah. for. Um, now, as you get older, so kids are out of the house, mm-hmm. your home is paid off, you have substantial assets, you don't really need life insurance anymore. Yeah. Um, you could have it as an additional. Uh, wealth management tool, but yeah, it's, it's not needed. But also too, you need it like for your home, mm-hmm. right? If your home burns down and you don't have fire insurance, what are you going to do? And then you need, especially where we are in Texas, where there's a lot of swimming pools, yep. you need an umbrella policy because yep. if something happens at your home in your pool and you don't have enough insurance, you're in trouble. Umbrella policy, meaning the liability. So somebody gets hurt, they'll pay for the medical bills, things of that nature. Yeah. So an umbrella policy, if you think of an umbrella, it mm-hmm. covers everything. Mm-hmm. So you have your auto insurance, your mm-hmm. home insurance and property and cash, you know, a bunch of stuff. An umbrella goes over all of that. Yeah. And it it's covers for like issues of something happening in your pool. Yeah. And for pennies on the dollar, you could buy a couple million dollars worth of an umbrella policy. Mm-hmm. And highly recommended. Yeah. And then on the other side, you know, if you are married and you have kids, you, you need uh, you need to insure your income. So you need a disability yep. insurance. So if something happens to you uh, while riding your bike or hunting or whatever else, you need to insure your income. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're only going to die once, but you can become oh, disabled. Yeah. <laughs> you can become disabled multiple times yeah. over your career. So you need insurance to protect your insurance. Yeah, one, one point income? on disability insurance, because this is kind of a misconception, is you don't get disability insurance after you come disabled. That's that's a huge kind of uh, gap that a lot of people witness. They've actually changed it to income protection insurance yes. because you need disability insurance before you come disabled so they start paying it out because you can't get disability insurance once you're disabled. It's like buying fire insurance yeah. after your house burnt down. Yeah. You, you can't go, hey, you know, my home burnt down. I want insurance. Yeah. You know, it's just not going to happen. Uh, yeah. So they're they're trying to change the name of all these policies to make people say, oh, okay, income protection. That's that's cool. I yeah. need that. I need that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't need disability. Yeah. But I need to protect my income. I'm not disabled, so I don't need yeah. disability. Yeah. Two, two things on the life insurance. One of the biggest misconceptions is they have to be crazy expensive. A lot of whole life gets thrown around when we're talking about life insurance. We might even do an empowering education just on insurance because there's so many and it's so vast. But there's an affordable option such as term life. So you're not going to accumulate cash value, but it's the same thing as an auto insurance where you have coverage as long as you're paying premiums. And those can be significantly cheaper than a whole life or a variable life that we talked about. And then secondly, you said not to focus on the premiums. I completely agree. The big thing people need to focus on is the death benefit. Because we've had clients that come back, oh, I have life insurance from my work, and it's maybe a hundred thousand to a hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, and you're talking about making sure your debt is taken care of, mortgage taken care of, and then even uh, your salary for your spouse. That one hundred fifty thousand is not going to stretch as far. So it's important to really kind of yeah. fine tune those numbers because a lot of people say, "Do you have it? I have it. Check the box." But yeah. <laughs> it's important to be not underinsured that we really haven't talked about, but yeah. And what happens if you get laid off? 
So you, yeah. you, you have your life insurance through work, you're covered. Then you get your pink slip. You're like, oh, I'm not covered anymore. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really, like you said, you want to do all this stuff before it happens. Yeah. And, you know, work insurance is great, but it, it only covers maybe one time salary, two times salary, up to five, you know, whatever that number mm-hmm. is. Um, but you need to calculate what you're worth if you're gone. And another uh, misconception is the non-working spouse. Yes. And more often than not, it's it's the wife staying home with the kids. Um, I don't want to get into the non-spouse yeah. discussion, but uh, <laughs> the non-spouse needs to be insured. Yes. Because the argument that we hear all the time is, well, I'm earning the income. They are not. I could easily replace all those things. But if something happens to your spouse, think about all the things you need to replace that you don't see happening behind the scenes. Also, you might not be emotionally ready to return to to work, depending on what happened. So you need to insure your non-working spouse really to as much insurance as you have as the working yeah, spouse. Agreed. Because if your non-working spouse passes away and you have young kids, who's going to go shopping? Who's mm-hmm. going to do the daycare? Who's going to clean the house? And, you know, just, you know, male or female non-working yeah. spouse, you have to replace all of those Functions that you might not see while yeah. you're out golfing with your buddies at a work conference. So <laughs> you need to ensure the non-working spouse. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Completely agree. Yeah, so that's that's a lot of risk that we've talked about. Any any other ones that you feel are prevalent that need to be stated? Uh well, there there's a lot of risk out there, but yeah. these these are the big ones. Yeah that you need to be aware of. Um, But so many people focus on principal risk. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose money in the stock market. You know, looking out the front door, why they leave the back door of their house wide open and people are robbing it day in and day out. Uh, So if you're not insured, you are exposed to a lot more risk than you are with the stock market correcting. and we haven't talked about estate risk, but if you don't have, depending on your net worth, the state insurance, yep. you could have a big hit there. We, well, I did, gosh, probably in 1996, a client inherited money. When were you born? 1996. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so when the year of your birth, um, I had a client inherit a lot of money. Yeah. And he, the, the, uh, his uncle did not have any life or estate insurance mm-hmm. or anything. And the client had to write, uh, pretty much half of what he inherited to the government for estate taxes. And there's no way he would ever lose 50% of his investments the way we were invested. So with one stroke of the pen, he lost half of his inheritance to mm-hmm. the government. So, you need insurance at multiple levels. Yeah. And of course, a financial plan will will identify those risk levels. Yeah. But uh, and, and you're young. And when you're young, you think you're going to live forever. And, you know, I don't oh, need yeah, this. Yeah, I don't need sure. that. And then uh, 
And if anybody's been in a car accident, it seems like more often than not, what do you run into? An uninsured motorist. Yes. So there's a lot of risk out there and you need to make sure they're they're covered. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it just takes a quick analysis to save you millions upon millions of dollars. Super so just quick. don't put it off because insurance is one of the only things that can only be done before the effect, not after the effect. So Yep. Well, yeah, that's that's a really good um, empowering education. We appreciate that. Now we're going to move on to our intriguing issue. And my intriguing issue is kind of the first wave, I'd say, of chat GPT Ugh. ruining companies. Well, not, maybe not ruining companies, but creating you can say rules for companies. Because yeah. Chegg um, Tuesday was yes. trading, got cut in half. Yes. And so it was down 48%. Yes, I know. From too its well. highs. Yes. Yeah. And, and it was because chat BG, chat gpt is taking over kind of their audience and they're they're user driven because they're really kind of wanting to go to this chat gpt instead of chegg because chegg if you don't know is a a study resource an educational resource has exams has study questions and all that great stuff for um schooling and chappy gpt came in and people were like well why would i pay for chegg when i can just go ask any question to chat gpt yeah the CU came out and said, well, it's an issue, but we think it's going to be fixable and it's probably even going to be incorporated. So I think now Chegg is going to incorporate ChatGPT into their They have and they're coming model. out with, yeah. a, what's it called, uh, Chegg? Uh, they're coming out with a service that incorporates yeah, Chat. Yeah, AI. Uh, AI. Yeah. And, and prior to their earnings announcement, people were excited. And then now you, they're the first company to report where they're getting eaten by chat GPT. Yeah. And the CEO is doing all the right things, saying all the right things. I really liked he, he's compared to analogies like this is we don't see a disruption, but actually an incorporation because they've already done Bitcoin payments and all these things. So they're kind of on the forefront of innovation. So I think they're going to be OK. But it's just this idea this is kind of the first rumblings that we see of AI really affecting yeah. an earnings of a company. And we'll see if it. Yeah. They're calling it actually Chegg mate, which is <laughs> their AI driven thing. But I mean, we can go back and look at technology at multiple timeframes, the calculator, the internet, um, everything was a risk Yeah, at that moment. Like, Oh my gosh. The calculator is going to replace math teachers mm -hmm. or the internet internet's going to replace everybody. Yeah. And, you know, here we're still here. So I think once people figure out AI, um, it, it'll be a powerful tool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it's just this but idea. It, it's it's going to cause some little bit of rumblings and a little bit of discomfort in the near term. But yeah, definitely going to be great for the long term. What was that song? The. TV killed the radio star or whatever. Video. <laughs> Video killed the radio star. <laughs> Which I think was the first song played on MTV. Look at that. Yes. Well, it certainly didn't kill the radio star. So no. That worked. no. <laughs> and MTV, even though they don't play music anymore, they're still, they're I guess, still, a music video. Yeah, they're still kicking. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing stuff. Perfect. Well, what's your intriguing issue, Well, the Kentucky Derby, the fastest two minutes in sports, uh, is this Saturday. I yeah. uh, love horse racing. I grew up near uh, Santa Anita Racetrack in Arcadia, California. And um, the favorites this time were Forte, Angel of Empire, 
and Tap It Twice are the top That's three. Nice. Here's, uh, I like A Long Shot only because of the name's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about the horse, but it's <laughs> called uh, Rocket Can. Okay. I love that name. And uh, do you know which horse holds the track record, the fastest time in the Kentucky Derby? Um, it's It's not a triple crown winner, but who was that? Pharaoh. No. Dang. It is a Triple Crown winner, and it's the 50th anniversary of Secretariat's winning. Secretariat, the, yeah. So Secretariat set the record in 1973. And you think about all the advancements in everything, and this is a 50-year record that some people are say saying will never be broken. Mm. Yeah. So watch it get broken. Yeah, yeah, you say it's yeah. broken. <laughs> but uh, Secretariat uh, set the record in 1973. Wow. Yeah. It's like the Wilt Chamberlain 100-point basketball game. I don't think that's going to get broken either. Yeah. What did Kobe get? 81? Kobe right? got 81. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is crazy to think with all the scoring. That's still not there. And then, it, it, yeah, I mean, these horses are not treated better than probably 99.9% of the entire universe. Yeah. And they're still not able to beat a 1971 record. 73, yeah. 73. Yeah, so, you know, just uh, my family and I love watching the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a thing. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. My my pick is actually Angel of Empire. That's, Angel that's of Empire. my pick. My pick is Secretariat. <laughs> They're chasing the ghost of Secretariat. <laughs> Perfect. Well, maybe it's AI. Maybe there's an AI. Maybe an AI horse. Who would have thought? That's probably what's going to be the next thing. Well, every now and then they'll do like computer models of like all the Kentucky True. Derby yeah. winners. And it's pretty cool to see. And Secretariat obviously still wins because it had the best time. Yeah. <laughs> he said, all right, well, perfect. Well, what do you want to leave our listeners with, though? Well... I would recommend for people to review their risk exposures. Mm-hmm. You know, what is left uncovered? What do you need to do? And as always, diversification links. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, and, and we'll Thanks. see you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, parrotwealth.com where you can learn more about everything we have to offer at Parrot Wealth Management. That's our view from the perch. See y'all next week.